In John's Gospel, chapter 19, we'll be looking at the first 16 verses of John chapter 19. Beginning at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read it. We thank you much more that we can understand it and apply it and know how much it benefits us. And so may the truths here be truths of eternal life for each and every one of us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, clearly, John is trying to highlight uh, two what appear to be discordant themes. One of kingship, which is a dominant motif in the last uh, chapter, in chapter 18, we saw prophet, priest, king, and here, definitely, uh, the idea of kingship comes up. So you can be in no sort of uh, denial that John is clearly establishing Jesus as a king. The problem is that he's establishing him as a bruised and battered and weak and defeated king which is not really the ideal king. So if you just look at the mere facts of history, at the time when these events were taking place, you would have to come to the conclusion that Jesus is a failed king. Because what king stands before 
his court in such a pathetic, bruised, battered, bloody way. But if you have read the Old Testament, you will find that there is another theme that runs throughout the Scriptures, and that is one whereby God will willingly choose to make Himself or His people weak in order to display His strength. You could go back to Genesis, and what does He do? He makes Abraham the father of many nations, Abraham and Sarah, who are far past the age when ordinary people would be able to have children. They are made weak, so to speak. If you go to Judges, you see that there is this Judge Gideon, and he is going to fight the Midianites, and they start out with 22,000 soldiers, which sounds like a good number, but that's too many. That's too strong. That's too powerful. So what does God do? He makes Israel weak. Not just down to 10,000, but down to 300. That is God showing His power in weakness. Some of you well know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal is another example. Now, I am no great outdoorsman. I don't like camping. I don't even think if you brought a hotel to a campsite, I'd be happy just because I'd still smell the campers. But... While I'm no great outdoorsman, I do understand a few things about how fire generally works. Now, let's say you were to go to a campfire. I don't think they allow those anymore, but you can well remember the good old days, right, where we had campfires. And uh, Pastor Mark comes out, and you're starting to build a fire, and you've got the sticks, and you've got the paper, and scrunched up, and all of this, you're building your fire, and I have a massive gallons and gallons of water and I just pour it over the wood and the paper and everything in the fire, you'd say, um, Pastor, with all due respect, and at this point the due respect is admittedly quite low, um, what are you doing? What was Elijah doing? What was Elijah doing when the prophets of Baal, the big debate was whose God is going to consume their sacrifice with flames and their God did not because he was on holiday or he was relieving himself and so they moaned and they, they cut themselves and they did a dance and song and then Elijah resorted to mocking them and then Elijah says, well, you know, I want my God to now consume this sacrifice, this bull, with flames. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to douse it with water because that's what everybody does who wants something to set on fire. But you see, there's a, a bigger theological point being made. God makes himself weak in order to display his strength. So here's Jesus. He's before the religious leaders. He's before the Romans. What is God going to do with his king? Make him strong? Call 12 legions of angels? Defeat them? Or will God make his king weak? And if the Old Testament is anything to go by, you can be sure that God will show His strength in weakness. So, Pilate takes Jesus and flogged Him. Now, what type of flogging was this? There were three types of flogging back in those days that the Romans performed. The first was the fustigatio. And this is you getting a little bit of just Latin words. Uh, you know, you can use this at a dinner conversation uh, not really 
talk about flogging wouldn't be a great dinner conversation topic, but the fustigatio is just the sort of lower end of the flogging. It's a, it's a beating that someone would receive from Romans for uh, somewhat light offenses. Then you would have the flagellatio, and that was a much more severe one. It was a brutal flogging administered to criminals, seasoned criminals, people who had uh, committed crimes that were in some sense against the state. And then you had the verberatio, and the verberatio was the most significant, attached to crucifixion, where there would be a, a whip, and on the whip with leather um, cords that would be embedded in either little pieces of wood and stone and it would lacerate the body very easily, slicing it open. Now, it seems to me that Jesus may have received the initial first flogging here, a beating. And the more severe flogging came a bit later once the sentence in verse 16 had been passed. So you, the reason I say that is because uh, there's other things in the synoptics that uh, help us to sort of try and make sense of all of this. Whatever the case is, he was beaten. And it wasn't a friendly beating. In fact, it may have been even a bit more severe than the first one, the fustigatio, uh, because Pilate is trying to make a point here and trying to get Jesus out of death by having him beaten. So notice what ends up happening he doesn't dwell on the violence of the flogging in verse 1, but in verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Now, anyone who has read Genesis chapter 3 will see that there's something quite remarkable taking place here. Why did thorns enter the world? Well, that is in the context of the curse. There were no thorns until there was sin. And with sin brought curses. And the curse brought many different manifestations, one of which was thorns. Here is Jesus becoming a curse for us and literally and symbolically taking upon Himself a curse in the crown of thorns. And so He takes this crown of thorns upon Himself as well as being arrayed in a purple robe, which was a royal color. Now, of course, this is a type of mockery, but nonetheless, here is the king. A crown on his head, albeit thorns, and a purple robe. And what do they do? Well, they come up to him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, remember, this is Joanine irony. People are saying things that are actually true, though they don't know it. Hail, King of the Jews, kiss the Son lest He be angry with you and you perish. They should have been saying these words, just not in the spirit in which they are saying them here. And they struck Him with their hands. If you go back to the servant song in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, we read of the servant saying, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. In other words, Jesus read of what would happen to him from a very young age, and now it is being fulfilled. He is being beaten, he is being mocked, he is being spat at, he is having the beard pulled, and so on. Now, Pilate, Pilate goes out again and says to them, See, 
I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And this is the second declaration of Christ's guiltlessness by Pilate. Now, what's remarkable about this is that Pilate is actually saying, I find no guilt in him on three occasions. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. If you go back, you don't need to, but chapter 18, verse 38 was the first declaration. Here you have it in verse 4. And then in verse 6, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. You want to make a point to someone? You tell them over and over and over again. Here you have godless Pilate declaring that Jesus is innocent right after godly Peter has declared three times he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Isn't it remarkable how godly people like Peter in a certain context can say, I don't know the man, and godless Pilate can in another context say publicly, I find no guilt in him. Over and over again. Three times. I was trying to teach my son a point when we got back from Denver. Thomas and I got off the plane And we took uh, not an Uber, but a Lyft, $20 cheaper than the Uber, according to my calculations. And it said, uh, you will be picked up in a black Highlander. That's a nice car. I'm very happy with that. So Thomas and I are standing where you're supposed to be picked up at Lyft at Vancouver International. Black Highlander comes. I put the bags in, get into the car, and they say, oh, are you this person's name? And I says, oh, no, that's not me, but I am in a black Highlander. And then the person who is not in the Black Highlanders, but supposed to be as looking at me with that sort of look like, did you just get into my Black Highlander? Yes, I did. I get out of the Black Highlander, wait for the, our Black Highlander. Ah, Thomas, there's the Black Highlander. It comes down, I get in, put the bags in, sit there. Ah, it's been a long trip. Now we can get going home. Are you this person? No, I'm not this person. The next set of people are looking at me with another look that was not exactly friendly. And I said, listen, it shows right here, Black Highlander. It was an honest mistake. I get out and then the third Black Highlander comes. And now Thomas doesn't want to get into this Black Highlander. But I got in. And when I saw the name Mark on his little screen, I was like, oh, good. So if you ask Thomas, what car did you get into? at Vancouver International with your father, he will never, ever forget a Black Highlander because three Black Highlanders came and we got into all of them. Now that's a great way to establish a point when you teach your child what car you're getting into. But it's also a way in which the Scriptures seek to repeatedly establish things that are actually important. If God is holy, we will find that God is not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. If Peter has denied his Lord, as he said he would, he will deny him three times. If he's to affirm his love for Christ, he will have to do it three times. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And here, Pilate is saying, no guilt, no guilt, no guilt. So, he makes that point. And then, as you keep on reading in verse 5, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Uh, There's your sermon uh, title. Ecce homo. 
that is, behold the man. And it is actually a, a declaration that has great theological value. It's not something that I think Pilate had any idea what he was talking about, that actually it's a declaration that's basically made in Genesis 1. Behold the man. And then you have in Psalm 8, where David is speaking, what is man that you are mindful of him? And talks about the creative power of God and also the way in which man has been the pinnacle of his creation and yet all things in creation are not subject to him. And then we see Jesus actually the true fulfillment of Psalm 8, which we were able to sing earlier in Hebrews 2. Jesus is the man. Behold the man, the true man, the righteous man, the guiltless man, Here he is, and yet here he is so pitiful, so weak, and so bruised that maybe the Jewish leaders will not demand further punishment. This is what Pilate's trying to do. Have him beaten, have him humiliated, have him go through this, and maybe they'll say, okay, enough is enough. And so Pilate can appease them, but also appease his conscience, which is saying, don't kill this man. So what ends up happening after he says, behold the man? Well, when the chief priests and the officers saw him in verse 6, they cried out, looking upon the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the humiliation he was already going through, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate again affirms that there is no guilt in him. So then the Jews resort to a new tactic. We have a law. The reason we are here is because according to our law, in our scriptures, he must die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, this is quite interesting for the very simple reason that being the son of God in scripture is not necessarily something that is bad. In fact, the king of Israel is the son of God. Psalm 2 affirms that. You go to 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Adam is called the son of God in Luke's genealogy. It's clear that if you are a king in Israel, you are God's son. It's a messianic title and not necessarily worthy of death. But they're saying that he is making himself the son of God and so he ought to die. What they are trying to claim is that he is illegitimately making himself a king. When you are a son of God in Israel, you are saying, I'm a king. And if you're a king in Israel, that means you're a threat to Caesar. And if you're a threat to Caesar, Caesar needs to put down such a threat. That's the politics that is going on here. Now Pilate hears this statement, and when he hears that Jesus is proclaiming himself as the Son of God, he is even more afraid. Why is he more afraid? Because he already has a deep-rooted feeling that there is nothing guilty in this man. He knows that he has been handed over by the Jews because of envy. His wife has said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I have suffered terribly in a dream because of him. He doesn't want to kill him. And now, what if he really is the Son of God? So what's Pilate going to do? He enters his headquarters again and speaks to Jesus. You can see he's tormented in his soul over who is this man? Where are you from? But Jesus gives him no answer. 
Because I think at this point, Jesus has recognized that Pilate is not really interested in seeking the truth. Pilate is seeking to somehow save his own bacon in a situation that's proved to be a little more tricky than he envisaged. So Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Which is technically true, and Jesus actually affirms that when he responds. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me, which you do actually have, unless it had been given to you from above. Your authority, which you have, is still an authority that God has delegated. And it's important for you to understand that Jesus is making a theological statement to help the reader understand at this point that while it may seem that Rome is in control, while it may seem that the Jews are getting their way, ultimately God is in control because the authority that this man has is an authority that's delegated from someone who has true authority. That is God. And God is not some bystander here who's helplessly looking on because creatures are deciding to do things that he has no way in which to navigate his way out of. Now in light of this, he says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, which I take to be Caiaphas, not so much Judas. Judas uh, tells them where they can find him and arrest him, but ultimately the religious leader at the time, Caiaphas, the high priest, is responsible for Jesus going before Pilate to stand this trial. And so I think it's Caiaphas who is guilty of the greater sin. And here you have one of those texts that establishes there are greater sins. Sins are greater by uh, different reasons. Who is involved, who you are sinning against, and so on and so forth. If, if some... A uh, kid were to sneak out. I used to do this when I was dragged to church as a young man. I'd sneak out and uh, go and talk with my buddies during the sermon because the preacher was so boring. And, you know, I'd like, when's this thing? And then my dad would come looking for me and say, get back in there. And I was like, oh, you found me. Oh. So if anyone leaves now to go to the bathroom, I'm going to just say, well, there you go. And let's say uh, one of you sneaks out and goes and steals an ice cream while uh, I'm preaching and you're down there going, oh, this ice cream tastes good. And let's, let's say that's a sin. Yeah, I'm going to call it a sin because I'm not that boring. And, um, but then someone goes after and, uh, you know, someone last week left their car running. I think they were hoping the sermon would end and they could just jump in and take off quickly. Is that what the case was, Mike? Yeah? Yeah? crazy taxi driver leaves his car running thinking someone would jump in you could make a few bucks hey yeah i know your type you go and steal a car the aggravation is greater based upon the nature of the sin here you have the greatest aggravation you can imagine it is man killing god the person you sin against aggravates the sin and when you hand over the Son of God to be killed for unrighteous reasons, you have the greater sin. Now these Jewish religious leaders, they're not stupid. They may be wicked, but they're not stupid. So in verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, which is 
Still, his conscience working overtime, I think, on him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, we've established a law, but now if you release this man, not only does our law say he must be put to death, but if you release this man, guess what? You are not Caesar's friend. For everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. If you do this, you're not a friend of the LGBT community. Have you heard that language before? Or the girl guides come to you? You don't buy my cookies. You're not a friend of the girl guides. Okay, here's your 250 for those disgusting cookies. And they are. You, you play on the rhetoric of the whole situation. Oh, Pilate, under Caesar, governor under Caesar, if you allow this man to be a king and you establish his kingship, you are not a friend of Caesar. You are allowing a rival. You can't do that. So when Pilate hears these words in verse 13, words that were quite tricky, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. So here's Pilate sitting in judgment over Jesus. I want you to think about how utterly significant this contrast is. You have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who inhabits the places of eternity, the one who created the world, sustains the world, the one who will come back to judge the world. You have the one who alone understands and knows all things, and yet he is the one being judged. And Pilate says to the Jews, as Jesus is being judged, behold your king. This is your king, really? This is the king that is a threat to Caesar? Who won't speak? Who's bruised and battered? Who's got a crown of thorns on his head? This is your king? And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate, aggravated towards the Jews, especially says, shall I crucify your king? Now, he's not making them have second thoughts at this point. Because when he says this, they're not going to be like, ah, you know what, yes, he is our king. And we need to fall prostrate before him and bow down to the one who is the true son of God. No, the chief priest answered, and I don't think if you were to have sat down with these chief priests a few weeks or months ago in their lives and said, will there come a day chief priests, when you will say against everything you have always believed as a religious Jew who says we have no king but God, will there come a day in your life where you will utter these words, you have no king but a pagan king. We have no king but Caesar. Will there come a day and they would say, don't talk such rubbish. Everything about our religion, everything about our law establishes that we have only one king and that is God. And yet here, out of absolute hatred against Jesus Christ, they are willing to give up a lifelong confession to say we have no king but Caesar. Pilate, just like you, in obedience to Caesar, as you carry out this crucifixion, we have no king like Caesar. 
Caesar. They are trying to make themselves out to be more loyal to Caesar than one of Caesar's own subjects. And Pilate can't obviously allow that. And so they demonstrate not only their slavery to sin, but also their slavery to Rome in order to have Christ killed. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The end. Now what can we say by way of application? I think one thing that really struck me as I was looking at this is it really brings out a point about some of the Christian persecution and suffering that people go through, uh, even in terms of just generally. You actually will suffer more in this world, in this society in Vancouver, simply because of the designation of who you are than things you will actually do. In other words... The very fact that you call yourself a Christian and the godless find that out is enough for them to dislike you immediately without even doing anything. Why was Jesus killed? It wasn't actually in the first place because of the things He was doing. They didn't say, oh well, He fed 5,000 people. We really need to kill this person. He walked on water. He provided wine at Cana. He raised Lazarus. They don't come and say He did all of these wonderful things. They said He is saying He is the Son of God. I remember my wife and daughter came home one day and they'd been to Foot Locker and my wife's like, oh, you should have seen this guy. He was really talking to Katie and even the other guy at Foot Locker had to come and say, okay, now let's get going. You know, and he's really talking to her and for about 50 minutes, you know, just, oh yeah, talking about soccer and where they played and this and that and the other, you know, and... Uh, Katie's very conversational, no problem. And then finally, after about 15 minutes, he says, oh, and then what school do you go to? She's like, oh, I go to Langley Christian. He's like, oh, no, no, listen. <laughs> I, uh, no. And just literally left her. And someone else had to come and finish the deal with the shoes. And she's like, oh, okay. He didn't even say bye. And it's quite interesting because once he found out Langley Christian, oh, that's enough. You're a Christian. It's just a designation, Right? Well, on the one hand, yes, but on the other hand, it's enough for people to hate you simply because of who you are. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is hated because of His identity. He is the Son of God. You will be hated on account of your identity. If you're just willing to give up the name Christian and keep on living your life as you are, but never ever utter the word who you are, you'll be just fine in this society. But the mere fact of your identity will be enough for people to hate you simply because of that. The second thing that I think is quite striking is Pilate had a very strong belief internally and even was able to express it but didn't ultimately act upon it in any significant way. He didn't go with his gut. He eventually gave in to the mass. He gave in to the crowd. He's, shall we say, a politician. I don't talk about politics from the pulpit. I'm not going to tell you who you should go vote for. There's no advantage to me or to you. And... Uh, 
But I will say that the text is quite clear here. You can learn something about politicians. And this goes for all politicians because they're all pandering to their crowd. The so-called good ones and the so-called bad ones and the ones in between. And you see, Pilate is a politician. He's trying to navigate the situation, but ultimately he gives in to the crowd. I have no doubt there are politicians that say things and they don't really believe them. You hear what some of these politicians say, you're like, you can't really believe that that is true, right? But they've done the so-called math according to their advisors and they have to say these things because they have to appease the crowd. And the important point for us to establish here is not to be like Pilate, not to be someone who believes one thing in their heart but actually doesn't act in accordance with what we really believe. How tragic that so many really do see something admirable in Jesus Christ, really do feel as though they should be serving Him, but for fear of the masses, for fear of the crowd, for fear of society or whatever it may be, they decide not to publicly follow Jesus and think they can have private Christianity when there is no such thing. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Pilate sinned because he knew what the right thing to do was and yet he failed because he allowed politics to trump service to Christ. One last thing. John shows no embarrassment about portraying Jesus as a pathetic, beaten, defeated Messiah. And as you somehow take yourself back to these events, imagine just being someone who had followed Christ your whole life and you've been with Him and you see how it's unfolding and you see that maybe there's a chance that Pilate is going to let Him free I think each and every one of us, let's say Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there witnessing this trial. Don't you think she's thinking, surely they're going to let him go? Hoping they're going to let him go. Praying they're going to let him go. That he really is a good man. And Pilate is even saying he's a good man and that ultimately good is going to triumph. I, I went away. Uh, each year our school soccer team goes to Campbell River. It's the beginning of the season tournament and we go play in this tournament. And it's very interesting to me each year how different the group is. And, and you know, I've, I've gone with some characters in previous years. You know, the types that you go for cell phone check at 11 o'clock and they hand over the cell phone, but it's actually an extra cell phone they've brought that's older so they can give to you. And then you find out they actually still had their cell phone because when you're in the room, Katie is telling me that these guys are still texting on their cell phones. Nefarious, wicked characters. This year, I go away, and I'm not joking. The boys are having a Bible study in the room. They're doing their homework. They're actually listening to everything you ask them to do. Before games, they're praying in a group, and I didn't tell them to. And after the game finishes, they're praying in a group. They're the best behaved kids I've ever taken on a trip. And then we get to the final of the tournament against Argyle, who were the AAA provincial finalists last year from North Van. Horrible people in North Van. Entitled people. Oh, 
Oh, I heard them on the sideline. Doug Jeffers is a decent chap, mind you. And Steve. <laughs> Anyone else from North Van here? <laughs> and we go to a shootout against a powerhouse. And we get to the fifth shot. And the fifth shooter for us is actually a boy who left the Whitecaps residency program and came to our school. He'd had enough. And they all knew that. And I heard on the sideline, they're going, wow, that guy left the Whitecaps to go to a Christian school. And he's got the last shot. We've scored all four of our shots. And he steps up and he misses. And we lost. And I actually was like, no, we didn't lose. We're supposed to win. These boys have been praying on the trip. They've been doing their homework. They're nicer than the guys they played against. I actually thought that. I just thought, God, why would you not let them have fun and rejoice and cheer and let these scoundrels win from North Vancouver? Why would God let these religious leaders get their way? Why would God not move in Pilate's heart to let Jesus go free? Why? 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 You look at the situation, you go, why? Until you realize that God was under complete control the whole time, just as Christ was in complete control the whole time, and that God's way of victory actually was in so-called defeat, that God's way of conquering was through humiliation, that this is how God works. And so while an onlooking world, whether religious leaders, whether the Romans, whether even the faithful watching on were thinking, oh no, this is a humiliation of epic proportion God in heaven is looking at the greatest victory of the greatest king who ever will be or shall be or has been, who has taken the curse of humanity on his head and in his hands and on his feet and through his side and defeated it by becoming weak. And so when John wrote this, there was no reason for him to hide the humiliation of Jesus Christ because John knew when he wrote this, that it didn't end that way, but led to victory and led to Christ as the true king who can never be and never will be defeated and will return to stand in judgment, not only over Pilate, but over all those who cried, crucify him, crucify him. And indeed, all of those who to this day refuse to believe in the Son of God. Don't be like Pilate. Don't be like these religious leaders. Kiss the Son, lest you perish in His anger. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that in the midst of humiliation, in the midst of suffering, of pain, we know there is victory. For we know that Christ did not stay in the grave, but He was vindicated. He was justified. And he is now proclaimed through the nations as the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords in whom we put our faith and trust. Amen.